if we look back at the founding of the country and the drafting of the First Amendment, it was people of faith, including many Baptists, who insisted on government neutrality in matters of religion as a way to protect their religious exercise. And that's because when government takes sides, they necessarily pick and choose. And religion is best left in private hands and that the government's involvement will only dilute uh, religious practice and could harm it for those who are being persecuted. From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. Two virtually back-to-back conflicting decisions by the Supreme Court on the right of prisoners to have a spiritual guide of their own choosing and their death chamber highlights a new frontier in the separation of church and state. The Joint Baptist Committee for Religious Freedom is a faith-based lobbying and advocacy group that seeks to preserve and defend the separation of church and state. To understand what these decisions mean, Executive Director Amanda Tyler spoke with Beliefs producer Jay Woodward via Skype. Amanda, thank you for joining us on Beliefs. Thank you and welcome. Oh, thanks so much for having me. We've asked you to come to Beliefs this week because you recently wrote an opinion article for the Religion News Service about two Supreme Court decisions on religious freedom and the death penalty. Tell us about the first case, the execution of Dominique Ray. Sure. So the issue there was Mr. Ray, uh, who had committed a heinous murder back in uh, the 90s, uh, while he was in prison, he had converted to Islam and he had been working uh, with a spiritual advisor, with an imam uh, who was provided through the Alabama Department of Corrections for several years. A few weeks before his scheduled execution date, the prison official came to talk to him about what was going to happen on the day of execution. And at that point, he learned that the Alabama's policy was to have a Christian chaplain accompany him into the execution chamber and be with him at the moment of death. He objected to this practice. He said, I I don't want a Christian chaplain with me in that moment. I do want uh, this imam who's been working with me. I would like him in the chamber. The state denied his request. And uh, when it came to the Supreme Court, the majority justices said that Mr. Ray had waited too long to raise these claims. And Mr. Ray was executed on February 7th without his imam. Okay. So so that's Dominique Ray. He's scheduled to be executed on February 7th, and 10 days prior to which he learns that his imam will not be allowed in the chamber with him at his moment of passing. So tell us about the second case, Patrick Murphy. Yeah, so this case comes out of uh, Texas. Patrick Murphy, uh, again, committed uh, a heinous crime. And while he was in prison, I believe he also converted to Buddhism. And so Texas had a similar policy to Alabama that they would only allow state officials who were chaplains into the execution chamber. And the only chaplains that the state employed for this purpose were Christian or Muslim, no Buddhists. So he requested that he have his Buddhist advisor present with him in the execution chamber. Again, the state denied that request. He did not file his claim, his with the federal court in this case until two days before his scheduled execution. So this time the courts said that his execution could go forward on the same sort of reasoning from the Ray case that he had just waited too long. 
this time it works its way up to the Supreme Court and they come up with the opposite decision. They say, no, that the state of Texas cannot go forward with its execution until it allows a Buddhist spiritual advisor in the chamber with him. Uh, well, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. I said, this was really shocking to a lot of court watchers. We were shocked by the Dunn v. Ray case. We felt like this court, which has been very solicitous of free exercise claims, uh, very interested in protecting religious liberty in other contexts, that they would deny this prisoner, his imam, was was very shocking. And then less than two months later, the court issued basically the exact opposite opinion. So, so we had 10 days in the Ray case, two days in the Murphy case. So it, it can't be that that it was a, an issue of timing. And so I think a lot of people then ask the question, you know, what what's the difference between these two cases? So what I've been seeing, uh, people have been interpreting this as one, that the court took on board some of the public outcry regarding this decision and it affected their thinking so much that they made a contrary decision. Or two, we have to acknowledge that Dominic Ray was a black Muslim whose execution was allowed to proceed, but Patrick Murphy is a white Buddhist. And when considering his situation, the court reversed itself inside of two months. I tend to think it is more the first, that uh, the justices who changed their votes in these cases uh, were really swayed by the public outcry and the advocacy, both by their colleague, Justice Kagan, who wrote the dissenting decision in the Ray case, which where she called the court's ruling that the execution could go forward as profoundly wrong. But the fact that the court got it right to me on the second case is small solace for Mr. Ray, who was killed without a spiritual advisor at his side. Right. Now, in addition to this being a fascinating moment for Supreme Court watchers, it's also important for understanding what the state's role in the spiritual lives of U.S. citizens, uh, specifically a conversation on the separation of church and state. So your organization, the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, advocates and lobbies in this space. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. So BJC, we defend and extend religious freedom for all people. We do it from a uniquely faith-based perspective, uh, from the Baptist faith tradition. And in doing so, we are the only denominationally based organization that works solely on religious freedom and separation of church and state. We're located in Washington, right across the street from the Supreme Court. We've been doing this work for more than 80 years, and a lot of our work is done with the Supreme Court, filing friend of the court briefs in nearly every church-state case that comes before them, uh, as well as uh, working in advocacy with Congress and uh, doing education with groups around the country. A faith-based perspective on religious freedoms cases is a unique perspective, isn't it? I mean, there aren't many faith-based organizations that so actively pursue the separation of church and state and the rigorous enforcement of the Establishment Clause like you do. Is that correct? 
I think that's true. I think because we see religious freedom as uniquely protected in this country uh, by robust protection of both of our First Amendment protections, uh, that government will not establish religion, that government will stay neutral in matters of religion, and that that will lead to the greatest freedom possible for all faiths and for people of no faith at all, that both of those are uh, equally important in protecting religious freedom, uh, that that serves well both people who are in a majority religion status and those in a minority status, including people who don't claim a faith tradition. Hmm. So, okay, so as I understand it, that's how we've been looking at these cases for like the last 10 or 20 years, that we are exploring the distinctions between the freedom to exercise freely and the freedom from interference with our practice. Are, are those things in tension? Are they, you know, are they harmonious? Is one thing becoming more prominent than the other? Yeah. And I, I think religious freedom requires both, right? That, that they're not mutually exclusive and that in order to have freedom to practice your religion, you also have to have government not taking a side in that. And that that view that government must remain neutral in matters of religion is not anti-religious. If we look back at the founding of the country and the drafting of the First Amendment, it was people of faith, including many Baptists, who insisted on government neutrality in matters of religion as a way to protect their religious exercise. And that's because when government takes sides, they necessarily pick and choose. And religion is best left in private hands and that the government's involvement will only dilute uh, religious practice and could harm it for those who are being persecuted. What do these decisions in these two cases mean for your work at the Baptist Joint Committee where are we as a country in this new turn in the conversation about how religious liberty should affect not just uh, the regular citizenry, but prisoners and not just prisoners, but convicts on death row? Well, one, I think we're having a pretty robust conversation about what religious freedom means and what it means in a pluralistic society. And it's been heartening to see groups that don't always agree on these issues coming together really in uh, defense of allowing all faiths to have representation there in uh, the death penalty chamber. Um, I do think it's important to look at what Texas did after uh, the court's decision in Murphy. You know, the decision from the court, again, which was unsigned, just said that the state may not carry out Mr. Murphy's execution unless they permit his Buddhist spiritual advisor or another Buddhist reverend of the state's choosing to accompany Murphy into the execution chamber during the execution. I was reading the entirety of the opinion there was that one statement. In Justice Kavanaugh's uh, concurrence, uh, again, this isn't the force of the whole court, it's what he thought. He gave the state kind of, he, he thought the state might have two options. They could either allow a Buddhist reverend, or they could say no reverend at all. And it's that second option that the state has said. They said, look, you know, if, if this is going to be the law, then we're just not going to have any spiritual advisors in the chamber. And I think that's the exact wrong direction. 
We at BJC say when anyone's religious freedom is denied, everyone's is threatened. And I think that's what we see here. You know, here we saw Mr. Murphy is having his re- uh, religious freedom denied when when his request was uh, was refused. But the state's response isn't to accommodate that religion. It's to say, well, if we have to provide it to you, then we just won't provide it for anyone. And that, of course, hurts not only Mr. Murphy, but every other prisoner who might be executed now without uh, a spiritual advisor at his side. That seems very strangely uh, petulant, as though you could almost say that Justice Kavanaugh provided what amounts to an absurd alternative by saying either provide for all faiths or no faiths. Do you suppose it was imagined that Texas would actually turn around and say, well, we'll choose no faith guide comfort for prisoners being put to death? I I think we see courts having a strong deference to the state in matters of prison control and particularly in matters of execution. And so I think that Justice Kavanaugh's suggestion there was – a sign of deference, because, of course, the state's arguments in both of these cases have been this is all about prison security. Their, their argument isn't that that these other faiths don't deserve representation, but they say, well, it would somehow you know, impact the security of the execution process. And so I think to see Texas go in that direction, they're really just hunkering down on that argument. I think many of us in the religious freedom world think that that's not right. So it will be interesting to see if we see future litigation of this case as it relates to Mr. Murphy and what impact that might have. And if the court will indeed say there is actually a First Amendment or a statutory right under something called the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act that provides extra protection for prisoners, that they actually have an affirmative right to have a spiritual advisor in the death chamber. That could be a question that we'll be seeing in the coming weeks or months the court address. Well, that was my next question. What is the horizon for death penalty cases and religious freedom cases? What are we going to be talking about um, over the next three to five years? Well, I I do think that this kind of situation where we're finding policies that are both written and then executed in a way that show a preference for a majority religion, uh, Christianity, are going to be challenged in this way by minority religions and by people who identify with minority religions. Uh, It'll be interesting to see if the state's respond in a similar way, that instead of accommodating minority religions, we'll just take away the accommodation for all. This Supreme Court has been very solicitous of free exercise rights, but those cases have been coming up recently, mostly in the context of Christians raising those claims. When we start seeing free exercise rights cases coming from minority religions, it'll be interesting to see if the court is consistent in its application of the law for them. But this particular controversy about religious freedom in the death chamber, uh, it feels like we haven't heard the end of this because 
the justices are having conversations with each other in these opinions, and I think they might be reflective of conversations they're having inside and with each other at the court. And we'll see if we see future uh, arguments or decisions. I do think this is a, an evolving area. It's an interesting one, and it's one that has gripped the attention of court watchers and everyday Americans as well. Mm. Is there anything else that you think we'll be talking about in religious freedom spaces coming up? What's what's coming up next? Well, the Supreme Court has a, another church-state case pending right now. It's called American Legion versus American Humanist Association. It's also known as the Bladensburg Cross case. This is the World War One Memorial Cross that sits at a traffic intersection, right? That's right. And the question before the court is whether a 40-foot cross on government land constitutes an establishment of religion. Uh, the parties who are looking to keep this cross in place have made an argument that the cross is a secular symbol, a secular symbol that it just stands for death in general and honoring war dead, and therefore it can stay on government land. And uh, the American Humanist Association challenged this cross as an establishment, as the government taking sides and sponsoring a Christian symbol. Uh, and so the justices will have to decide uh, you know, the fate of this particular cross, but also uh, they're asking the question, would, you know, future such memorials be allowed? So we'll see the uh, decision from the court in this case uh, probably this June. BJC has been involved in this case. Uh, we filed a brief uh, saying that, yes, this is an establishment of religion because the cross is a religious symbol. And we were responding to arguments from the other side that the cross was just a secular symbol. We say the cross is a religious symbol. In fact, it is the preeminent symbol of Christianity. And for the government to claim that it is merely a secular symbol is offensive to Christianity as it attempts to strip the cross of its religious meaning. Amanda Tyler, thank you so much for joining us on Beliefs. Thanks so much for having me. Our guest was Amanda Tyler, Executive Director of the Joint Baptist Committee for Religious Liberty. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. We are collecting stories. If you have a story of your beliefs that sets you apart, Email our producer at jw.beliefs at religionnews.com. That's jw.beliefs at religionnews.com. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker, and thank you for listening.